All right, guys. Um, so let's dig into this lesson. So we're getting into ministry concentration segment unit of teaching. Um, you looked at that calendar earlier, so there's lots of different facets. So this one's going to be, um, yeah, this is just kind of my intro to the semester, I guess. Um, some things I think are really, really important about thinking about ministry and about thinking about um, kind of in your mind how to categorize even some of the things you hear the rest of the semester. I just want to give you like um, some things to plant deep in your heart that you can hold on to that no matter how practical or successful something may or may not be, to really boil it down deeper to this stuff. Like what are you going to concentrate on as we're concentrating on ministry? Does that make sense? Um, so I just want to, this will be kind of a blend maybe of spiritual formation and ministry stuff. Um, but that's how it all should be. So um, that's kind of the, the point. So as I was thinking about ministry concentration and setting up this unit and doing an intro for it, um, I just started thinking about that word concentrate. What made me start, start thinking about it more, did any of you guys have, I just had vivid memories all the time in my childhood of getting the um, frozen orange juice or grape juice concentrate, you know, in a little yeah. tube. And you, yeah, you open it like you would like crescent rolls or something. You, know, you have to open the cardboard thing and like peel the thing and then like, Shake it out into the water and the yes. Exactly. I didn't have to do it. It just like slurps out and then you add water because it's concentrate. So you add water and now you've got orange juice and it comes in a little, you know, it's something. Um, so you should look it up. Orange juice concentrate. You can still buy it today. It's available for you. Um, but I was just thinking about concentrate like that when you really boil it down. What? I said I definitely ate that wrong. I just ate it out of the thing. I bet that would be great. It's like a popsicle. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Okay, so concentrate, right? There's multiple levels of it. Do one of them now. Concentrate. So here's, here's kind of the three facets of what concentrate is, even just by definition, what that word means. The first one is mentally focused. Um, to be mentally focused is to concentrate on something, right? Like you're going to concentrate on this lesson. You're going to concentrate when you read. You're going to concentrate if you're playing a game. You're going to focus on it if you want to be good at it depending on the game, I guess, but mentally focused. To concentrate is to be mentally focused. Uh, another um, facet of the word concentrate, which I think is a little different to think about, is like to be purposely gathered, to be purposely gathered. So like if you were going to say something like, um, lots of the world's wealth is concentrated in the FIFA executives globally, which is true. Watch Netflix. Uh, FIFA is crazy. But um, to, to think of things like gathered up in one place, like... There's a lot of influence concentrated in like one, you know, one sphere of people. There's a lot of wealth in the world concentrated in the 1% of people who have it. That kind of stuff. It's like there's something gathered up in one place or one general location that like it kind of has a purpose when you bring it together and can have more influence for good or bad when you gather it together on purpose. Does that make sense? The third one is the orange juice thing, like essentially reduced. If something is essentially reduced down, that's a concentrate, right? Like the noun. Um, like an essential oil think of that like the most essential element of what makes this thing this thing and it's so strong you don't even not even sure you want to put it on straight you got to dilute it more because it's concentrated that's what a concentrate is so we're going to talk about concentration in ministry and concentrated ministry think of all those facets i think it's helpful um, all those facets like mentally focused we want to be mentally focused on doing this well doing it a certain kind of way so that's some of what we're going to talk about today what are things you can like Put in place in your mind so you're focused on the right stuff and focused on the right outcomes. Because what you focus on is going to do, have a lot to say about what you do day to day and what you get, what result you get. I'm um, also kind of purposely gathering together. Like, I, There's a lot of things we could do in ministry. What are you going to say, like, 
this matters most. Let me gather this together in my mind. Let me gather together my efforts to this goal. Like I'm going to purposely kind of get everything in the right place to make the best impact. And then even to like really boil it down to its most important things. Again, you could do a hundred million different kinds of things that are ministry, all of which might be great. But, but for one, for you, what is, what is your ministry calling? For another, um, just as Christian people, really in a spiritual biblical sense, what's the most important thing? Like, is the most important thing that we have, you know, church services? Is the most important thing that we have mission trips? Is the most important thing that you have a group's ministry? I, it could be lots of things. That doesn't matter so much. The most important things are even more essential and boiled down than that. And then you can kind of add water and contextualize as you need to. But what's the most important things that makes ministry ministry? Does that make sense? So that's what I want to kind of talk about today. Hopefully today um, we'll kind of give you... Uh, but probably won't be brand new stuff we talk about. It's, it, it'll be more like heart stuff and putting language to something that you've probably thought about in some capacity before. But I would hope today might lead to something that you reflect on further and say, I want to take those categories that Ben kind of talked about and what are mine? Like what are, what are my specifics for that category? Because I, I could fill out these categories a little bit. Some of them are just like, I'm going to read a Bible passage to you, and that's what it says. That's the category. Some of it is like, here's an idea. How are you going to put that in practice for the next four decades? Um, so I hope some of this would stir you to reflect and kind of fill out your specifics within the categories. That's kind of my goal today. Is that making sense so far? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the first one, the first kind of category I want to talk about is ministry anchors. Ministry anchors. We've talked about this concept before. I know at least you second years have heard me talk about this kind of thing before. Not, not necessarily in this context, but this kind of thing. First years may have some. I, you know, I, I talk about the same things all the time probably. But ministry anchors. So, so what I think of when I think that is, what will keep you steady in the storms? What will keep you steady in the storms? So as you're thinking about ministry, thinking about your life in ministry, your calling, your purpose, the kinds of things you want to do. And again, some of that's going to be specific to you. Some of that's just like general, this life of ministry we have. What are going to be the things that keep you steady? Because things are going to get hard. Things are going to get discouraging. You've, if you've got an anchor down somewhere, then you're not moving, um, even no matter how hard the wind blows, right? Um, so what are going to be those anchors for you? So um, look at, uh, well, you don't even need to open to this section necessarily, but in Acts chapter 9, that's when Saul is on the road to Tarsus, and Jesus shows up to him, right? And he's blinded. And he converts to Christianity from a persecutor of Christianity to now an apostle of Christianity. And then he goes about planting churches everywhere. So that happens in Acts 9. But then in Acts 22, Paul tells that story. And then in Acts 26, Paul tells that story to a different crowd. So I've always thought that was really interesting. For one, it's just a cool thing to see in Acts. What are the things that like, inspire Paul to say this is an important story for you to hear? But I think of this as I'm thinking about Paul's life and ministry. I bet for him that conversion story was a kind of anchor for him. Like he could really think back to, this is when my life was changed. This is when I was called to ministry. I'm, I'm going to remember that story. And when Paul's sitting in prison, and then he's brought to trial, what's the first story he tells? Acts 22 and 26. You need to hear the story about when Jesus showed up to me and called me to this. And he's using that to try to influence them. But it it comes out pretty easily for him when he's at his worst. When it would be easy to be swayed and blown around, he's anchored in, I know what God did when he showed up to me. So you're blank there, I would say, hold on to your calling. Hold on to your calling. And that can be your calling to ministry. It can be your calling to faith. You know, like the Bible uses that word kind of both ways, actually. Um, but for Paul, I think that was an anchor for him that he knew 
Jesus showed up to me and talked to me. Jesus told me the kind of job he had for me. Jesus told me the salvation that was available through him that I couldn't find anywhere else, and I was trying to stop. So what, what in your life can you look back on and say, things might get hard, things might get discouraging, this job has been frustrating at different times. Ministry fruit, honestly, comes and goes. Like There are seasons where it's really fruitful, seasons where it's not. You're harvesting, you're planting, uh, you know, all that stuff. Sometimes it's winter and there's no harvest. Ministry fruit comes and goes, but there are some things in your life that you can say, no matter what, I know. God showed up here. God spoke to me here. God called me here. God saved me in this moment. And I bet you've got those things. Um, so I would encourage you to like think about them, reflect on them, write them down. Um, we, I've talked about this kind of thing before, but like have a physical reminder sometimes. You know, stuff like that. If there's just a special place or a special thing, like keep that. Don't, don't, you know, I've got trinkets all over my office that are stuff like that, just reminders. Um, because it helps me when the storm starts blowing. Say, no, 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 I remember this. There's an anchor here. And so then when people are accusing you and criticizing you or asking you, you can address that, but it's going to come like, like from Paul. I'll address your specifics, but before that, you need to hear. One time I was on the road to Tarsus, and you'll never believe it. Jesus showed up to me, and that anchored him in the hardest time. Um, this next section, um, let's look at Ephesians 1.15. Go ahead and flip there. I'll flip around those passages a little bit in the second bullet. Um, they'll be familiar, some of them. But Ephesians 1.15. So this is you know, obviously early in the letter. Paul's kind of getting ready to address them. Um, he said a bunch of things at the beginning of chapter 1, like kind of theologically setting the stage. And then in verse 15, um, he's been talking about how God has saved the Ephesian people and they're kind of you know, loved by Jesus and doing ministry with him. And then he says in verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I think that's interesting, just that, that little verse. So like, um, Paul has spent a lot of time with the Ephesians before this. He's going to spend more time with them you know, later at some point um, because he kind of comes and goes. They were special people to him. But even here, he's saying, but I've, I heard about you. Like, I heard something about you that inspired me. I think that's an anchor for Paul in some capacity. To, to be able to say, I've heard this story about something amazing in people's faith, in people's life, God's transformation of them. And that keeps me going. And, you know, ever since I heard that story, it inspired me to pray. Ever since I heard that story, I, w- I wouldn't doubt if Paul's, like, traveling along somewhere or has just come from, like, preaching and getting riots, you know, starting a riot and getting rocks thrown at him and says, but you know what? I remember hearing about the Ephesians' faith. God, I pray for them. Like, keep them strong. I heard that they came to faith in a powerful way. And he's going to hold on to that, right? Does that make sense, that, that anchor concept? Because he knows it took root somewhere. It may not be taking root here, but it took root there. So I know it's possible. I know God can show up, and I'm going to remind myself this works. It may not work every single time, but it works. And so I'm going to hold on to that truth. So you're blank there. I would just say celebrate fruit. Celebrate fruit. Because like I said earlier, fruit comes and goes. Like you can't always say fruit's going to be there. I know when I preach, people respond. I know when I teach, people learn. Sometimes, you know, sometimes. Or sometimes it happens and nobody tells you and you don't know. Like living by fruit and fruit evaluation and success evaluation will wither you up at some point. You, you can't live that way. But when it happens, hold on to it so you can celebrate it. Because it may not happen again for a while. But you can look back and say, but I remember those Ephesians. I remember that it happened. And if it can happen there, then it's worth the hard work to see if it happens again one more time. 
Uh, and so sometimes that's an anchor that when things are hard, you can put that down deep and not budge. Um, the other verses there, um, in Philippians 4, um, Paul tells the Ephesians, talks to the Ephesians about like thanking them for their generosity and you've shared so much with me. So now I know I can be content in any circumstance, right? Because God's going to provide for me. And God will meet all your needs too because you've been so generous. That's what he says in Philippians 4. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells the Corinthians about the Philippians' generosity. So look at, let's flip to 2 Corinthians 8. Let's read that one. Second Corinthians 8, and I'll start in verse 1. Paul says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy. By the way, Philippi is in Macedon, Macedonia, so that's, he's talking about the Philippians there. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. By the way, the word grace is the same word used for like spiritual gift. So some of your versions may even say gift. Sometimes this is called the gift of giving, like a, a grace gift. It's basically the same. So um, I just think that's interesting. And he's saying you've been giving the gift of giving gifts. Isn't that cool? And you probably know some people like that too who are just like, they're just generous because it's, it's just what they do. They can't help it, whether they have a lot or a little bit. Um, some people just have a gift for that, which doesn't mean we're not all called to do it, but some people just have it. It's crazy. Um, and that's what Paul talks about the Philippians here and tell, using it as an example to tell the Corinthians, hey, you should be more like them. Then later in, in um, chapter 11, flip over there, 11 verse 9. So he's still, he's obviously moved on. You know, that's chapter 8. He's talked about a couple of other things since then. But then in chapter 11 verse 9, Paul says, when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So here Paul's talking about his ministry to the people in Corinth and saying, I didn't just come teaching and demand that you pay for every need that I have or every want that I had like a lot of teachers would do. They would say, like, you can come listen to me teach. It's going to cost you. But Paul would go to places and say, I'm going to teach because this is the gospel. And he's telling the Corinthians, I'm not demanding like other teachers were because these Philippians were so generous. I was able to give you something that's life-changing because of their generosity. Does that make sense? So it's just kind of cool to, to see how that pieces together. But in this anchor context, again, I bet for Paul, just like he might think, you know, I preached here and it started a riot and everybody's mad, but I heard about those Ephesians faith and they're holding strong and they're building a strong church. I bet sometimes he's like, man, these Corinthians seem like they're infighting, they're arguing with each other, they're super wealthy, but they're not giving anything. The Philippians were poor and they gave me enough that I could preach to the rich Corinthians for free. I bet for him it's like, man, God can do anything. So I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep encouraging. And if I can find a few faithful poor people like some of those Philippians, like he called them in chapter 8, they didn't have a lot, but they gave generously. I bet Paul's thinking, if that can happen, I can keep going. Because he brings it up to them a couple of times, you know. So I think for Paul, that kind of thing is an anchor. I've seen fruit, so I'm not giving up. So I would just encourage you in your life, find those, find those patches of time. Find those instances. When you've seen fruit, you know it's possible, so don't give up. 
And it's important, like, write those things down. Keep a picture. This is why if you've been in Kyle's office, and a lot of you probably have some. So I think I took a bunch of you up there at one point, didn't I? Mm-hmm. He's got pictures of people getting baptized. Because that for him is like, I, you know, sometimes he preaches, you're going to get criticized. Sometimes he preaches and people love it. But if people get baptized, they're responding to something that's been preached. And so he wants to keep that in front of him. It's a beautiful thing. Find whatever the fruit is that comes from your ministry. Find ways to keep it, to treasure it, to remind yourself of it. So you can keep going when the next storm comes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, the next one is First Samuel 7, um, 2 to 14. That's the story of Ebenezer. We talked about in the Old Testament. Do you remember this? So Samuel helped lead a battle against the Philistines, and they defeat them. So he sets up a rock and says, we're going to call this Ebenezer, which means a stone of helping. And then he says, because God has helped us up to this point. He's helped us this far. And so that's even the literal setup of like, God showed up, God did something, put a rock there. So every time we see that rock, we remember. And so, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I would encourage you to find physical reminders sometimes of what God's done and how he showed up. You know, I have like little rocks from places, you know, that are like something happened here. And it's silly, but I remember it deeply. And sometimes when I see that, it just does something to my soul. You know, I, there's lots of little things I have, like from CIY conferences when I was in high school that I'll never forget, and it's a silly thing to keep unless you were there and you were me, you know? And it's an Ebenezer. God showed up, and I think we need to have those things because they're going to go fight a bunch more battles against Philistines that didn't go very well. But they can look back and say, but that one he did. So what did we do right that time? Or what did God say that time? What can we count on from him that he helped us that far? So maybe he'll help us the next time. And I think it's worth just holding on to stuff. So your blanks there are to remember God's goodness and power. Remember God's goodness and power. Because, like I said with the, um, the people of Israel, they fought other battles against the Philistines that didn't go as well as the one in chapter 7. Um, and that was, in their context, mostly because they were being disobedient and awful. Um, and sometimes that may be the case for us, right? Like we go face something or go try to do some ministry and it doesn't go as well as it did before. And if you were really honest and let God search you, he'd say, that's because you're being arrogant and prideful or whatever it is. So let him search you in that. But you can remember God can do it. God is powerful. God is good. I'm going to remember that. And if it's not that way, it's either because of my sin or because I believe he's good and he has something better. But I can remember that because I held on to it. I'm not going to forget. He's good and he's powerful. So when I face a battle that doesn't go like I thought, I can see the rock and I know he's good and he's powerful. I'm not going to lose it. Does that make sense? Um, So I think for your life, find those anchors. And it could be, yeah, like your calling. Maybe you write out that story or tell it or just remember it. You know, sometimes you just like think back and reflect on that. Um, What it was like when you were baptized. What it was like when when you just felt called to ministry for the first time and said yes to it. What it was like the first time you like stood in front of a group of people or led at a table and led a discussion and it like went well. Like maybe there's something to this. You know, those things like it's okay to rehearse those stories and say, so when I'm frustrated, when I'm discouraged, when I feel weak, when I feel insufficient, I remember the God who did that. Retell that story to yourself. Write it down, whatever it is. Um, celebrate the fruit. You know, keep those stories in front of you. Tell the stories of God's goodness. Um, and I think in ways that are, that are like sustaining and humble to yourself. You know, Paul doesn't say, Ephesians, I heard that when you heard my preaching, it was pretty impactful. That's pretty cool. He says, I heard about your faith, and that inspired me to pray. 
So like as we as we remember impact stories, you know, this happens a lot around here, right? They're like, let's tell a one at a time story, and you guys, we've probably talked about this in here and some too. The temptation in us, not because that's a bad thing to do, but there's something in us that's like, I better have one, I better have one, I better have one, I better be good. How can I tell the story well? I gotta make sure, you know what I mean? You guys feel that if you're honest in your flesh, and it's not because that's a bad thing to do. It's because that's flesh trying to steal something good. What are ways that we can celebrate fruit that has nothing to do with my experience or value or competence or articulate preaching? But it just has to do with God showed up. I, I heard about somebody who did whatever be, only because of God. And I'm going to praise him for that. Just making sure the focus is where it needs to be. And those stories keep you going. You know, that's why we tell them. Um, and the same with keeping those things that remind you of God's goodness. So I don't know how you would kind of fill out your anchors for your life and calling but there will be storms more than there have been already there will be what will you do where will your anchor be when that comes um, you've got places to put it but I just think it's worth it when we're thinking about ministry even practical ministry to think about I want to be sure ahead of time that I've got my anchor down deep so that you're not floundering when it comes does that make sense okay um, here's the next one to, to um, think about. Ministry markers. Ministry markers. Uh, I remember a conversation Joe and I had years ago. We got out of a journal and we're like, let's just write down. I don't know what gave us that, that phrase, ministry markers, but let's just write down the things we want to mark our ministry. And let's do it now. This is years ago when we had, we had done tons of ministry and met lots of people and been to lots of places. But certainly before, like nobody knows who I am, you know? So like I, we wanted to... Before people are really looking to you as a leader, before people know who you are, before you're in charge of a lot of things, settle in your heart. What am I about? What is my character? What, what am I going to measure? What's going to define me? Settle it now. Because the bigger the spotlight gets, the more tempting everything else gets. Um, so I just remember pulling out of the journal and saying, I, I don't know what my ministry will look like long term. Hopefully I never get super famous. But... As influence increases, as responsibility increases, it only gets harder to really say, this is the path I'm on, regardless of outside pressures. So I'm going to settle that before there's outside pressures. Does that make sense? So the question for this is, what will keep you on the right path? So I want to determine ahead of time, this is my path. I don't want to start hiking a mountain and then halfway up there when it's starting to get a little bit dark and maybe it's starting to snow, then decide, wait, maybe this will be better. Like, no, 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 I decided ahead of time. This is the safe path to the top. And later on, I don't want some illusion of what a fast way is going to be to derail me. I want to decide now. This is the path to the top and back. And I'm not going to get derailed when I get halfway up the mountains. Is that making sense? Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking like trail markers, you know, like the things when you're marking along a trail that like you're on the right path. This is the way. Keep going this way. Um, so here's the first one um, from Matthew 5, 3 through 12. You guys are at least somewhat familiar with this passage probably, but let's just read it and let it let it just kind of settle into you again. I think this is a good one to just keep in front of you pretty regularly and redefine so much of our mindset. So Matthew 5, 3 through 12, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So your blanks on this um, is just to maintain kingdom values. Maintain kingdom values. So I, I would encourage you at some point, if you haven't done some of this already, at some point find a journal or find a card you keep somewhere or something, or a note on your phone, whatever, where you just write down, these are going to be the markers of my ministry. Before anyone is asking, you know, before anyone is evaluating how well I've done, before any, anything like that ever happens, I would really encourage you to define what is the trail I'm walking. This is the path no matter what, and define it. And I would say as you do that, maintain kingdom values. It's so easy to lose sight of blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the, those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. It's so easy to lose sight of blessed are the meek. And it's so easy to subtly grab onto things like Blessed are the influential because they're going to help you reach more people. Blessed are the wealthy because they can fund your ministry to do whatever. Blessed are those who are outgoing and energetic and extroverted because they will further the culture and the feel of the room. It's easy to grab onto that stuff that like in their context, those things aren't evil. But if that's your blessed Artha, that's not kingdom value. This is the kingdom value. So before it becomes a pressure-packed decision and before it becomes things that subtly start shifting you off a path so that you're in the dark trying to scale a cliff, before you subtly get up there, decide, I care more about people who are mourning and who need help than I care about other stuff. I care more about people who are poor in spirit and meek than I care about the influential and the strong and the powerful. Those, again, in their, in their place, that's fine. Minister to those people, absolutely. Because it's an equal kingdom value to say all people matter to God, right? Yes, keep that. It's just so tempting to let those things kind of subtly shift you. And before you know it, you're like, how did I get to this? You know, I, I, I would guess, I don't know any of these people. I would guess the kind of people that we see and kind of mock on social media and roll our eyes at and give megachurches a bad name, right? About like getting their jets and the health and wealth stuff and all that. I bet you, I don't know them, I bet at least most of them don't start out thinking, you know what matters to me in ministry? Wealth, influence, fame, comfort, jets. I bet they don't start out that way. I bet it's little things where it's like, this compromise leads to this value, this leads to this value, and then before you know it, you're like, I'm living in a world that is not Matthew 5, and I bet it's not on purpose. So define the trail now. Um, so that the kingdom values guide it. Um, because it's so easy to lose sight of this stuff when it gets heavy, when it gets overwhelming, when it gets frustrating, when it gets tired. But this is the stuff. This is the kingdom. Um, so maintain those values as you're kind of setting out what are my markers? What's my ministry about? Um, the second one, um, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 20. This is a long passage. I want to read it all to you. Um, I think this is such a good one um, to just think about ministry and kind of all facets of this that Paul tells him about his ministry and what it is um, there's so many little things in here that you're like man I want to build a ministry on that I want that to define what I'm about um, and Paul, Paul talks a lot about that in 1 Thessalonians 2 so what's happened kind of in context here is Paul's done some ministry in Thessalonica and then he's left and um, they're facing some persecution and so he's probably a little worried that like are you going to fall away because I planted some seeds and I don't want the birds to come steal it you know 
Um, and I think he's also there, like, hearing some murmurings about, like, did Paul really, like, was he really great? Was he really right? There's these other teachers that seem much more impressive. There's these other forms of this religion that don't come with this kind of suffering. This seems miserable. Maybe he's wrong, and maybe something else is right. Those murmurings are happening, so Paul writes back, like, hey, 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 hang on, hang on. Remember what I said. Remember when we were together. Don't forget what it was like when you first heard this. So he's kind of reminding them. The storms are blowing, and he's trying to remind them of some anchors. And in doing that, he's talking about his ministry and kind of defending, this is why I did what I did the way I did it, and why it matters for the sake of the gospel. Does that make sense? So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is what Paul says. And we'll kind of read the whole chapter. I'll make comments here or there, but settle in for 20 verses or so. You know, brothers, that our visit to you is not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Let that define your ministry a little bit. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Man, let that sink into your ministry too, and how easy that could be. Never let the ability to be winsome, the ability to use humor to make a point, or the ability to be like, Slightly manipulative because it gets people to do something good anyway. Like, no, no, no. No impure motives. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's that verse up there, right? Be approved. Be worthy of being approved to handle this. And that's character level stuff. That's heart level stuff. That's motive stuff. And we are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. Let, let that one, I just want to read those verses again. And think about your life, think about your interactions, think about your interactions with people in leadership, think about your interactions with people you think might be able to get you something. Paul says to them, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Um, that verse 10, I, what a great compliment to get, right? And I think there's so much emphasis, and this isn't, again, in its place, in its context, this is not bad. I think there, there can be so much emphasis on, like, as ministry people, we don't want to be holier than thou. We want to be, you know, we just want to be, like, relatable. And I'm, I'm just like you. I, again, in its place, yes. Like, I'm not better than anybody because I'm ordained. I'm people's servant because I'm ordained. Like, it, that doesn't make me different or better. But I would love for one of the primary things people in my flock, people I shepherd, people in my church, if they were really to kind of reflect back on, like, man, what was Ben like? as a pastor, shepherd, minister, preacher, leader. I, I would rather, rather than them say, he was so relatable and so much like us, that's a compliment in its way and in its context. Wouldn't you rather they say, 
holy, righteous, and blameless. Even, even at the risk maybe of being like, man, he was like so different than us. Holy, righteous, and blameless. That's what, I want that. I want that to mark my ministry. Rather than, he's so cool, I don't care about that. Holy, righteous, and blameless? That's the trail. That's the path. Uh, verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. By the way, let me, let me ask you on this. I told you I was going to pause sometimes. Think about that. They accepted it not as the word of men. They're hearing from the Apostle Paul, one of the great writers, preachers, teachers, thinkers of his time. But they didn't hear it and think, Paul is so good. They heard the word of God. Why do you think that is? Probably because he was holy, righteous, blameless, gentle, humble, and gave them, this is the truth. I'm not flattering you. This is not about me winning your favor. This is not about me gaining a hearing. This is not about me gaining a salary. I'm not trying to make you like this or like me. I'm telling you the truth of God. So when they say yes to it, they know. I'm saying yes to the truth of God. I'm not saying yes to this super winsome preacher. Does that make sense? I would just love it. Again, like think about people looking back, reflecting on your ministry after a lifetime. If they said, man, when they taught, when they preached, when they led, when they sat down with a discussion, when they met me for coffee, when they discipled my whoever, son, daughter, friend, when you heard them talk, you could hear the words of God come out. When you heard them talk, God's word made sense. When you heard them talk, scripture was the star, not their wisdom. And so when we were discipled, when we were led, when they preached, when they taught, we heard God's word and God's gospel call us. And people don't walk away saying, what a preacher, what a leader. People walk away saying, I heard the word of God more clearly and more powerfully. That's a great ministry marker, I think. Um, Verse 14. Uh, For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. That's Paul kind of digressing a little bit to like, you suffered, we suffered, we're all suffering, but the mission is worth it. That's kind of what he's saying. Now he's back in verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. I would almost expect Paul there to say, like, what is our hope and our joy and the the crown we have? It is the gospel of Jesus that saves us all. And I think he would, like, theologically, he would probably bow down and be like, well, yeah, 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 my hope is in Jesus. But he's saying, when I stand before God because of, because I have that hope in Jesus, when I stand before God, what he's going to look at and what I'm going to care about is the people that I influenced. And I don't think they're going to be there because they're pointing at Paul. I think they're going to be there because they heard Paul share the gospel. And because they know God more clearly because of just some messenger. But I love that mindset from a minister, for for us, if that could mark our ministry. That kind of love for his people. To say, like, when I stand before God, you know what I'm going to be proud of? He's not proud of his accomplishments, the amount of churches that he planted, whatever. It's, I led people who now found him. 
And I think that's a worthy thing to be proud of. And again, Paul doesn't say here, my, my joy and crown is that I preached well enough that people were saved. My joy and crown is you, like people. He loves them. Like if that could mark your ministry, that your people really felt like, they love me. They want me here. They value me. They want me part of this community. They see my flaws and bring me along. Like if that marks your ministry, that's kingdom values from Matthew 5. That's godly, humble, meek character from Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. Um, I love that. So you're, you're blank for this, I would say, to just kind of sum up this chapter that you can tell I love a little bit. Um, I would say live with kingdom character. Live with kingdom character. So um, obviously Paul talks about, like, you know, we shared our lives with you. You know how we live. We weren't greedy. We weren't trying to trick you. Like, it's this high character, high integrity kind of thing. But there's even stuff like um, things that, that may not be bad. Like, he, I'm not demanding payment from you. I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to, like be upside down on the things I value because the, the kingdom is at stake here. And I don't care if you know who I am. I care if you know who Jesus is. Like kingdom stuff is a play more here um, than anything else. I love you and will serve you. You are my joy, Paul says to them. Like, this is kingdom character saying the most important thing is how well I love and serve you. How humble I am before you. How honest and full of integrity I am. I'm not flattering you. I'm not lying to you. I just want you to hear the truth. That guides his ministry. Uh, the next one. Uh, the next one. There's a, lots of verses here. Let's. This is another chapter, a story you're probably familiar with, but I just want to read it and kind of let it let it wash us a little bit today. Uh, John 13. Let's start there. John 13. Uh, I know you. I know you know it at some level at least, but let's just read uh, John 13 and starting in verse one. It says, it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So where do you think Paul got it, right? Like really loving people, probably from here. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body's clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Uh, so John 15, you know you know as well, Jesus says, I'm my father's the gardener, I'm the vine, you are the branches, remain in me got to remain in me. He also repeat the same thing. No servant is greater than his master. He'll repeat that in John 15. 
because you've got to remain in God. Jesus even says, I can't do anything apart from him. You think you're going to do anything apart from us? You've got to stay connected. Um, so the servant mindset of Jesus, you call me teacher and Lord. That's what I am. And teachers and lords in that day would have been served. And Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. It is different. If we want to be like that, if we want to minister like that, I want, I want something to mark my ministry to be, he was willing to serve. And no matter what position, no matter how influential, no matter what role, servant. Um, and I want, I want that to be seen. Um, even if it takes forcing it in myself sometimes. I would rather be a servant than anything else. Um, and I would rather be known for I am trying to just be like Jesus. Like I'm not greater than him. If he's the servant, he's the source of all power. I, how do I expect to be beyond that, separate than that? I'm going to stay connected because that's where the only power comes from. Um, John chapter 20, let's flip over and look at that one. Um, I love this little verse. And I think, I think sometimes this verse gets missed because it's right in the middle of a bigger story that gets talked about with Thomas um, and the Jesus appearing to the disciples and all that stuff. But this little verse, John 20, verse 21, is really, really good. So let's start in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, this is obviously like resurrection time, right? Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And then he'll go and appear to Thomas. So I love that verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. An interesting study. I've done this before. I may have, second years, I don't remember if we talked about this when we were in John. Um, but you can look at all the different times the word sent is used in John. It's a ton. That Jesus says a lot about, I was sent, I was sent, I was sent, I was sent. So then I think in chapter 20 when he says, just like I was sent, now you're sent. I think he's saying all this stuff I've been telling you about how I go about doing this, in the same way, now you're sent. So what he's saying is, you go do what I've been doing. You go now, Jesus, the world, right? That's how you're sent, what you're sent to do, what we're sent to be like. And I think he would add, if he was going to kind of monologue around it a little bit, I think he would say, oh, and by the way, no servant's greater than his master. So you're sent like I was with the same kind of authority. You know, like, go, go help people see forgiveness of sin, he tells them here. You're sent with my kind of authority. You're also sent with my kind of servant-heartedness, John 13. You're also sent with my kind of, like, chasing after the lost. You're also sent with my boldness. Like Jesus is pretty bold speaking up to people in the gospel. Mm-hmm. You're sent with all that stuff. Jesus says, all this stuff you've heard and seen me do, take that with you, go do it. This is now yours. In the same way I was sent, you're sent. Um, so the, the blank I would put kind of for all this stuff is aim for kingdom success. Aim for kingdom success. It's so easy to shift the success targets. It's so easy to shift the success targets, which is why I think... Before you get very high up that mountain, pick your trail. Uh, because once you start getting up there, everything looks appealing. I mean, I'm not much of an outdoorsman, as you probably know. <laughs> but I know, I know enough to know that you can, like, it's so easy to get off trails. It's so easy to think, like, that mountain's close. Let's just go over there. It's so easy. If you're in a desert, it's so easy to see mirages. It's so easy to, like, things seem one way once you're on the path. And if you neglect your plans... 
you're going to get off course. You're going to get derailed. You're going to die out there. Like, it's that drastic. And so I think it's so important before you get very far, choose the path. This is how I get there and how I know I can get back safely. That's the path. Choose now before there's pressure. Choose now before the peak is appealing. Choose now before there's other things like a stream that looks beautiful or another path that looks flatter. Choose now when you can see everything clearly, when you can see the map clearly. Choose now. What is success for me? Because that target will start to shift on you. And you've probably felt this a lot. I, I mean, it happens all the time. The targets just start shifting a little bit. The targets become numerical. Or the targets become um, like emotional response. The, the targets become, again, and those things are good. Like the Bible counts numbers of salvations, you know, in the Acts, in the Pentecost story. It's a good thing to have a large number of people come to faith. If that's your success target, it's a bad thing. If that's a, a fruit celebration later, what a gift. But it's easy to make things the target that aren't the target. Does that make sense? It's easy to stand up in front of a room and be like, man, I thought this room was great, but people aren't amening very much. Like, who cares? I decided beforehand what success is. Success is handle this text with integrity, preach it with clarity, give it to people and let the Spirit work. How they respond audibly doesn't matter, but it's easy to make that the target. How people respond in worship, it's easy to make that the target because you can see it. That's not the target. This is the target, you know? It's so easy to let the target shift into good things. It's good if people are engaged in the music. It's not the target. So choose now what the target is. And the target is, I will be a servant to people. I can hit that target. It's not a glamorous target. It's an easy target to shift. It's an easy target to neglect. It's an easy target to think will just kind of happen along the way as you're aiming at other stuff. That's kingdom success. Kingdom success is, I remain in the vine. That's kingdom success. And then he says, I want you to remain in me, and then you'll go and bear much fruit. But he doesn't say, and here's the amount of fruit you should get to know that you've been successful. He says, remain in me. I'll produce the fruit. It's so easy to make the fruit the target. The fruit's the byproduct. The vine is the target, right? Uh, how Jesus was sent. Jesus says, you are sent like I'm sent. And then he says, now go and do the kind of work I was doing. He puts no evaluation on that, did he? In that passage we just read. He tells them the things to do and how to go about doing it. He doesn't put any kind of success metrics on it. The success metric is, you are sent like I was sent. Live a life like I lived it. That's the success metric. So choose now. This is kingdom success for me. When other things come along, if they come as a result of being on this path, great. I would love lots of fruit. What I really want is to be on this path. Does that, does that make sense? But I think if you're trying to navigate it as it comes, we'll get lost so easily. Choose now the path and let the success just come as you're walking the right path. So aim for kingdom success. Aim for kingdom success. I mean, what? John 13. Yeah. I feel like I've done enough retreats with you that when you were reading Jesus, it was your Eli tone. And when oh. I was reading Peter, it was Punch and Ello, and I'm not going to lie, I was wrecked. <laughs> I was like, stop. So this books are so good. Yeah. These books are so good. All right. All right, here's the last one for today. Last one for today. Ministry tool for this lesson. There's other things we're going to do today. Uh, ministry tools. Ministry tools is the last one. So let's talk about the kinds of things you want to bring to bear on this stuff. 
So, you know, f- figure out your anchors. What are those things that you can just reflect on all the time? I've seen God's goodness and power. I've seen him show up. I'm dropping my anchor in that. Figure out your ministry markers. This is the trail. I'm going to walk on this trail that's marked by, by the Beatitudes, by servant-heartedness, by gentle-heartedness. This is the path. Other things I, are not my target. Kingdom success. But then what are the tools you're going to take with you to do it? Because there's lots of things you could use that would be great. It would be good. Like, I'm a, I love preaching, right? Like the, the tactical, homiletical, how do you preach and how do you kind of create things that people can follow. Love that stuff. Studied it deeply. Have a master's degree in it. That's not the most important tool. Mm-hmm. Preaching well is good. Preaching this is the tool. Does that, does that make sense? So let's talk about the right tools to have as we're kind of evaluating what's the path I'm going on and I got to bring the right thing or else I'm going to get stuck up there. Um, if you bring a, well, I don't need to say that. Ministry tools. So what will keep you equipped for the most important work? What will keep you equipped for the most important work? Um, first one I want to look at today is Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Another probably familiar passage. Um, but just let's uh, let us let ourselves hear it again today. So Ephesians chapter six, um, starting in verse ten, Paul says, "Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God." So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which was, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Um, So your blanks for this passage are supernatural battle calls for supernatural weapons. Supernatural battle calls for supernatural weapons. So... If you're a preacher, teacher, get good at it. Study it. You would be foolish and arrogant not to think that you needed to get good at speaking well. And that's why we have you practice. Um, that's why, it, in theory, I give you feedback on it to help you. I'm not behind, but I will. I'm not forgotten. It's good to get good at it. But the most important thing is that you have the sort of the spirit at your disposal. Not that you have Fred Craddock's homiletical strategies at your disposal. Although those are good. It's nothing compared to the sort of spirit. It's nothing compared to righteousness that you have in place. You live by righteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ given to you. You have the righteousness of God as an anchor for your soul. That, guarding all of your actions and all of your choices and all of your plans, that being the, the primary tool you bring to bear, is so different than having a good calendar and having a good strategy. That's, do that stuff. But bring the right tools to a fight because um, if you bring a knife to a gunfight, you're going to lose, right? If you bring great plans and great strategies and great study and good homiletics to a spiritual war, Satan's going to laugh at you. He'll just laugh at you. It'll be helpful sometimes. It won't win the battle. 
you got to bring spiritual weapons to a spiritual battle, and that's the one we're fighting. So I think it's so important as we think about the ministry you're doing, whatever else happens this semester, whatever else happens in your experiences, whatever else happens in your residency, there's going to be all kinds of practical stuff that's super helpful. Take all of it in, use it. I wouldn't give it to you. I wouldn't structure the semester if it wasn't worthwhile. It's worthwhile. But if you get good at practical stuff and good at practical experience and build a great resume and a great set of you know, exposure that you've gotten yourself, but have not grown in your ability to do Ephesians 6, Satan's going to laugh at you. And at some point in the next decades, you'll be exposed as having brought a knife to a gunfight. We've got to bring the right weapons. We've got to bring the right tools. And it's this stuff. Just don't forget this stuff. How many times did Paul say pray? Pray all the time. Pray continually. Pray also for me. Like he knows if we're not engaging this prayerfully, we will lose it. Eventually you'll lose it. And you'll be worn out doing it. Um, so just bring this stuff. Truth. The belt of truth. Let's just talk about that for a minute. The belt of truth. The truth of the gospel primarily, right, is the thing that holds up everything. Like bring the truth of God. Let that even be like, let that be a tool you bring. God's truth, yes, to everything. Scripture, the scriptural truth to everything. The truth, bedrock of the gospel to everything. Bring your truth to everything. Tell the truth. Like, let that be a ministry tool for you, which is going to be the gospel. But Paul talked about that in Thessalonians. He talked about it here. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to make myself look better. I'm trying to tell you the truth. I'm bringing the truth to bear on this, which, again, ultimately is the truth of the gospel. Let that influence every piece of your ministry life. I will tell the truth. I'll be honest in hard situations. I'll be honest to people who are going to have a hard time hearing the gospel because it's the truth. I'm going to bring that truth to bear. It's huge. Um, salvation like that that's kind of like the you know planning your anchors like look back on how god has called you that's the helmet that keeps you safest in one of the most vulnerable places i have been saved by god and called his son and moved into a position as an heir of the kingdom of god that is what guards me most it has to be or we're going to be weak we're going to lose you're going to be shaken and we got to hold on to that stuff and rehearse it and retell it and plant that anchor deep or we've just brought the wrong tools to the fight. You guys know this. I just want to inspire you with it. And whatever else practically you put in your tool belt. And again, put it all in your tool belt. But don't forget these ones. It's huge. Um, next one. Um, <clears throat> let's look at 1 Corinthians 1. It's probably the less familiar of these two passages. 1 Corinthians 1. I'm starting in verse 18. Another favorite for me. So 1 Corinthians 1, 18. This is similar, not the same, but a similar kind of context when we talked about Thessalonians. The Corinthians thought Paul was a little crazy because he wasn't super impressive. And so he's kind of defending, like, I don't care how impressive I am. Let me tell you what, what really matters about my ministry. Um, so he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise. By the way, brothers and sisters, think what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sound like John 15 a little bit. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Sounds like First Thessalonians 2 a little bit, right? I'm not trying to trick you. We're not trying to flatter you. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Love that passage. Love that passage. Just how much he's like, I don't care how impressive you think I am. I don't care if you think what I'm saying is stupid. I'm telling you it's the power of God. And I so believe that that I'm going to tell you, even if you think I'm stupid, because it is the power of God. So I'm just going to keep telling you. And I'm not impressive. I don't care that I'm not impressive. I have the power of God. And you should too. Um, So Paul is just so sold out to believing I don't care how I look doing it. I care that you get this from me. No matter what you think about me. I just want you to get this. Paul sold out to that. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 14-4-8 is that section when Paul says things like, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Oh, no, no, that's Hebrews. When he says, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then he says later, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Um, so he tells Timothy, scripture will do the work it's supposed to do. You have everything you need in Scripture to teach and equip and admonish and challenge people. Use it, Timothy. Preach it. Um, and that's not just to preachers. That's to this person doing discipleship kind of ministry largely, probably doing some preaching, teaching, also doing a lot of discipleship ministry on small scale and saying, go preach the Word to people because that has everything you need to be effective in discipleship. So that's not just for the pulpit guys, the pulpit people. That's for the people people, all the people. Um, so here's, the, here's your blanks here. Scripture is always effective. Scripture is always effective. Just never lose sight. And you guys have heard me. I'll keep beating this drum until you walk out of this room. Scripture is always effective. I don't care what your specific role is or how gifted you are as a public preacher, teacher, or not, whatever. Scripture is the tool. You want to be able to teach and rebuke and admonish and train and produce righteousness in people? You can't do that. The Spirit can do it, so you can pray. And scripture can do it, so you can teach. Those are your options. You can't produce righteousness in people. You can pray for them that the Spirit does it, and you can give them this so that it does it. Those are our options. So bring the right tools to the battle. That's the battle we're fighting. Scripture is always effective if you give it to people. So it's up to us to understand it. It's up to us to think it clear. It's up to us to get it in front of people. And it's up to us, like Paul in 1 Corinthians say, I don't care if you're going to laugh at me. I'm telling you this this is the book. I don't care if you're going to like, oh, those academic things. You must have been in 215 where you guys just do academics all day. For one, that's not true. For another, this is the power of God. So I don't care what you think. I don't care if you think I'm super impressive at it or not. This is the power. Let's talk about it. This is the tool we have to bring. So never neglect to bring it with you.
Uh, here's the last one, Revelation 12. I'm excited to spend more time doing Revelation with you guys at some point later on, but um, I mean, maybe, you know, next year, but we'll get there. Or later this year, I guess, huh? Crazy. Later this year. Um, Revelation 12. Let's read this section. And um, here's, here's what I'll say, kind of our preface getting into this chapter. There's a, obviously a revelation. There's a whole lot of images and a lot of weird things. Your mind can kind of rabbit trail on. Let me give you a couple guardrails to not, to not rabbit trail too crazy because just stay with it for the point. Um, when you see the dragon, it's probably talking about Satan. When you see the woman, it's probably talking about Mary. And this is John saying, we know the event that happened when Jesus was born. Let me tell you what it looked like from heaven's perspective in the spiritual realm. So John's trying to give like a spiritual look at the physical event that already happened. Does that make sense? So just let that be the, the big framework. Don't let your mind chase the rabbits. Stick with me because through, through the end of this thing we read is, is gold. You may be familiar with it already, but it's worth hearing. So chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain, and she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. So again, those details, don't let them steal you. Mary, Satan. Jesus survived. That's the point. And there was war in heaven. That's, that's I think, what John wants you to get more than the, the previous six verses. Is this thing that happened when a woman gave birth to a kid made a dragon so mad that it started a war in heaven. That's crazy. So bring the right weapons to the fight. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Hang hang on for a second, let me explain something, because this is crazy, but so, so good. Satan was just thrown in this kind of, this is the spiritual reality behind the Christmas event. Satan was thrown to earth because of the spiritual war that's going on in heaven. And the praise in heaven says, now have come salvation and power and kingdom and the authority of Christ. I thought Satan was just let loose on earth. Right. But Jesus won the battle. So Satan's roaming and causing trouble, but that means now is the time because heaven won the battle, won the war. So now is the time for the kingdom and the authority, the power of God and Christ to reign. Even though he's roaming and prowling, the kingdom of God reigns over that. Isn't that crazy? That's such a, like a little twist. I read that and think, oh, it's all over. Like, no, 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 he was sent here. That's bad. But the kingdom is reigning. Oh, so that's the battle we're in. The war moved from heaven to here. So we're at war. Does that make sense? Uh, middle of verse 10. It says, For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. 
they overcame him, they being our brothers, like who were accused and challenged and attacked by this dragon. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So we could go on, but that would get us into a whole bunch of other things to explain. That would be fun, and we'll do it another time. The point of this one is to say, there's war in heaven because Satan is so mad about Jesus. He lost the war, and so he's, he knows his time is short here, and he's trying to wreak havoc. But the Bible says, now is the time for the kingdom and the reign of Christ. So let's go fight. So bring the right tools to the battle. The war's won. Bring the right tools to the battle. It's up to us to fight him. Now, it's up to the power of God to fight him, right? But he's here. So let's take him on. As long as we bring the right tools, it's easy, relatively. So here's your blanks here. The blood of Jesus is the way we win. The blood of Jesus is the way we win. So simple, so bedrock true, essentially distilled down, concentrated like a little orange juice thing. The, really, it's that simple. Boil it down. The blood of Jesus. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by our testimony about that. That's how we win. It's that simple. There's a war in heaven with a dragon. But it says, you know how you overcome? He already gave you his blood. Just tell that story. A heavenly war is won by that. It's not difficult. It's not like complex. It's hard to hold on to. It's hard to remember. That's why you need anchors planted deep. That's why before it gets confusing, before it gets chaotic, before it gets tempting, you chart your course at the top and say, there's one way, it's the blood of the lamb. That's it, kingdom values, that's it. Because you're gonna get up there and think, this is a war, this is crazy, this is huge, how do we win it, how do we fight it? It's gotta be this, it's gotta be this. And you're chasing targets. Like, no, it's the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So from down at the base, I'm gonna plot my course. I'm gonna plant my anchor, the blood of Jesus, period. Whatever it takes to live that out, I'm in. Whatever it takes to have kingdom character, that's it. Whatever it takes to just let the blood of Jesus wash me and testify to that, that's it. That's the tool that we bring to this. And we win. Which you guys know. And it's simple, and it's harder to live out, which is why we drill it in, right? And why, again, I would encourage you, take this, take these categories, reflect on them, write them down, kind of, kind of plant your ministry flag somewhere and say, for my life, I'm anchored in this, I'm anchored in this story, I'm anchored in this truth. I will walk this path in this way. The primary tool I bring is the gospel of Jesus for me. And then I will tell it. He saves you, and then you testify. Uh, But those things have to come to bear, and that's how we win this battle. So, all the practical stuff you could ever talk about or learn. And hopefully, I I think, by the way, the divide between, like, this is practical and this is theological, I think is usually kind of, like, too emphasized. If the theological is not practical, then it's not actually theological, I would suggest to you. So hopefully this is a blend of biblical, theological, inspirational, and that is practical. It is practical that the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony wins the ministry battle. That's practical. That's as practical as it gets. <laughs> that seriously is the tool. That's not a veiled way to say, so get good at creating programs. Like, no, 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 do that. That's not how you win, though. How you win is, seriously, the gospel for you and told to others. Seriously, that's it. So that is immensely practical. Hopefully all of this is immensely practical for you. And I hope you would take it and reflect and say, okay, for my life, let me just, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it down. Frame it or put it in a box where you keep somewhere or something. Put it by your bed. 
this is the path. This is kingdom success. These are the things I will do. My ministry will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit more than it's marked by the fruit of social media. My ministry will be marked by servant-heartedness more than it's ever marked by fame. However you put that down, write those things down. Mark it. Chart your course now. And then you win the battle. March, march your way up the mountain in a victory parade with God uh, because Satan is already lost. Um, I just want to inspire you with that. That for one, this is immensely practical. For another, whatever other practical things you do, whatever other events you plan, and you should. Like, don't, don't turn a, a talk like this into like, see, events are stupid, and workshops and programs don't matter. They absolutely do matter. And they're absolutely not stupid. But they're not the target. And if we keep the target the right place, put whatever programs around it you want to, as much as you want to, as much as makes sense, as big as you can handle, do it. But chart your course so that when you're doing big things, you don't let the big thing become the only thing, the primary thing. Does that make sense? So I hope this is practical. I hope you reflect on it. I hope it plants down deep. Drop those anchors. Write those markers. Bring the right tools and let that influence everything you do um, practically for, from here on out for always. And I hope, it's, I hope it's helpful. And that Revelation 12 image, so good. So good. Okay. Let me pray to kind of close this section. We'll take another break. And then I've got uh, one more thing I want to do after that, okay? God, thank you for today. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your word and your goodness and your kindness to us. Thank you for your power that is at work in us who believe. Thank you that the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony can overcome the power and the schemes of a dragon, a lion prowling around seeking to devour us. Um, We just say together that he has no victory. He has no place. He has no real power. Um, because the power is in Jesus. Now is the time for the power and the authority in the kingdom of God and of his Christ. And we are heirs of that. Uh, So we're not afraid. Um, We're not timid. We're not those who shrink back, but those who press ahead. You've given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So we just step into the kingdom that you promise us and say now is the time for that kingdom to begin reigning. Uh, because of Jesus and his blood that washes us. So wash us today. Uh, Let that be deeply true of us today, that we are Christian people, truly Christ's, like little Christ's, saved by him and loved by him, and so brought into your kingdom. Let all of our ministries, let all of our ministries be marked by the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the belt of truth and the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and continual prayer and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. Let that be what we bring to this battle uh, as you continue to win it and use us to do that, God, with kingdom character, kingdom values, uh, hearts set firmly on your kingdom. We just want to be like Jesus. So help us be more like him today than we were yesterday. In his name, amen. Amen, amen.